0: Welcome to Gov Innovator. I'm Andy Feldman. Our topic today is the Education Endowment Foundation in the United Kingdom, a nonprofit that's playing an important role in strengthening the use of evidence in education policy and practice within the UK. We'll examine what it does and the lessons it provides for other nations including the US. Our guest is Kevin Collins, the Executive Director. Here's a clip.
1: It's great to tell you that in just five years, we've now got one in four schools in this country involved in a trial that we fund and 127 different experiments underway and thousands of schools, um, 7,000 schools, nearly 800,000 children are involved in the studies. So although it's a difference, it's a change, it's not been something that the school system has walked away from. It's been something they've embraced and and I think that's... um, all to the good in terms of the professionalization and the ownership of what we do and the greater confidence we have that we're doing the right things.
0: The Education Endowment Foundation, or EEF, is dedicated to breaking the link between family income and educational achievement. But to do that, it has a unique strategy. It focuses on increasing the supply of high-quality evidence about what works, in order to enable better decisions by teachers and school leaders. it was launched in 2011 with a founding grant of 125 million pounds or about $165 million by the UK department of education. Today it operates as an independent grant making nonprofit with investment and fundraising income. It intends to award about 200 million pounds or about $265 million over 15 years. Remarkably, Today, one in four schools in the U.K. is taking part in some type of randomized control trial to learn what works that's funded by EEF. To learn more, we're joined by EEF's founding executive director, Sir Kevin Collins. He's worked in the public sector for over 30 years, including serving as the chief executive of the London Borough of Tower Hamlets and, before that, as director of children's services for that bureau. I'm glad to have him with us from London. Kevin, welcome. Hi, Andy. For those who are new to EEF's work, Kevin, how do you explain it in a nutshell? What's the organization's approach?
1: In a nutshell, the EEF is an endeavor to um, understand more about what works in education. and By conducting a very rigorous research and evaluation, we try and provide schools with information um, so they can make better decisions uh, around what works and what doesn't when you're improving outcomes for children.
0: I know that a key part of EEF's criteria for awarding funds is that grantees must be willing to do a rigorous evaluation in fact a randomized control trial how did that commitment to rigorous evidence become a central part of EEF's mission
1: so we know that education is um, full of great creativity and innovation and uh, there's no lack of that but what we um, have always been lacking is an understanding of when people do innovate, when people bring new practices to bear Do they actually work? Do they actually improve outcomes for children? Now, without doing rigorous and thorough evaluation, you can never be sure. And so we were committed to um, really understand in more detail what actually happens when you bring about a change or when you create a new opportunity. And so we thought rigorous, or we believe rigorous evaluation is the only way you can really know. Um, So that's been our big focus.
0: Did it take some time, Kevin, for schools to become comfortable with the idea of rigorous evaluation? Since I can only imagine that many schools were not used to or familiar with doing randomized control trials to learn what works.
1: Sure. Well, many people have um, innovated. And then they've seen that when they make the change, things happen. Kids get better. And they put the whole change down to the intervention or to the program they've introduced. Now that's dangerous because you need to be sure lot in education things are moving and changing all of the time and you need to measure what we call the counterfactual. You need to measure what happened in particular regard to that intervention. So when we brought that idea to schools, it was very unusual. There been very, very few randomised trials, which is common in medicine, but very rarely used in education in the English system. And it's, it's great to tell you that in just five years, we've now got one in four schools in this country involved in a trial that we fund, and 127 different experiments underway, and thousands of schools, um, 7,000 schools, nearly 800,000 children are involved in the studies. So although it's a difference, it's a change, It's not been something that the school system has walked away from. It's been something they've embraced. And and I think that's um, all to the good in terms of the professionalization and the ownership of what we do and the greater confidence we have that we're doing the right things.
0: I want to ask you next about an example of a challenge that EEF helped address, and that's the use of paraprofessionals in classrooms and, in particular, how to make them the most effective, those paraprofessionals. What was EEF's approach to learning what works on that topic?
1: Well, one of the things that we did before we even started the trials was we um, we gathered together and assembled what do we already know and we put that into something called our teaching and learning toolkit. That's just a synthesis of all of the evidence we can find around the world um, on a whole raft of 30 odd different dimensions of running schools. And one of the things that jumped out from the existing evidence was that paraprofessionals weren't making a lot of difference. This was the evidence. Uh, and in England, one in four of the people that we employ in schools is a paraprofessional. So this is a huge amount of investment, billions of pounds, and if they're not making a difference, that's a problem. So we thought, well, if the evidence says that, we can't let it stand there. We then went underneath the hood of that evidence and looked more closely at the schools where they were making a big difference, gathered that together, and started running a whole series of trials when you were... Uh, bring together what people are doing when it's effective and try and assemble that in a program and codify that, and put that in a, in a replicable way. Uh, we ran a lot of them. We found out that actually when you do train and deploy and support these people, the same people really well, instead of it being a zero impact, it goes up on average to two or three months of progress. Now, that's the same as if you're having another semester or another term at school. So the evidence taught us, one, that you cannot... Just employ people and it will make a difference. You have to really work hard in careful and structured ways to support these people. And that's now been lifted and taken on by many, many schools. So we've seen the evidence now mobilized and people are using it when they think about the deployment of their own staff, which is great because, as I say, there are so many of them. 300,000 people in our system are doing that job.
0: One methodological note that will be interesting to some of our listeners is that most of your studies use randomization by school rather than individual. That allows uh, an entire school to adopt a program, but you do need a lot of schools to participate to get a big enough sample size.
1: Sure, yeah. We treat the school as an individual unit, so we need lots and lots of schools to be able to um, randomize with the right power. Um, so, we, we have trials with hundreds and hundreds of schools in them um, and that's unusual because previously in education, all too often, you saw trials with maybe half a dozen schools which just aren't, doesn't have the right numbers, it's not significant, you just can't build the um, statistical power to give you any real knowledge or certainty. Sometimes we we randomize within schools, uh, particularly when we're using secondary schools which are much larger institutions, but more likely we randomize between schools.
0: One feature of EEF strategy that I wanted to mention to our listeners, since we don't have time to go in in depth into it, is that when an organization submits a proposal for funding to EEF, in other words a proposal for a research project, they don't have to include an evaluation design. Instead. EEF maintains a set of approved evaluators who work with successful applicants to design their evaluation with them. The advantage of that is it's a faster application process, it's an easier one for organizations, but on EEF's side it helps maintain standards of high-quality evaluation design since they're drawing from a known set of qualified evaluators. So moving on, Kevin, we've talked about how EEF creates a supply of new evidence but it also tries to create more demand for the use of evidence. What's the strategy there?
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. So if you find things out, but then how do you mobilize it? How do you actually bring that to bear into the practice of a teacher? So we spend a lot of time now uh, running trials which actually aren't about content at all. They're about let's explore ways of mobilizing evidence. So we are um, testing ways of providing teaching information. Is it better to go to a conference or is it better to receive online tutoring as a teacher or is it better to have infographics? Um, is it better to create networks of schools that are, if you like, consumers of the research or is it better to drive that from um, large large organizations like states or local authorities? We're testing all of these ways. Um, of mobilizing in the same way that we're testing the knowledge itself, and that that's unusual because we haven't that hasn't been done before.
0: I think this is such an interesting part of EEF's portfolio, and just to underscore for our listeners, this is research about effective practices for encouraging and helping school districts and schools to actually implement evidence-based practices.
1: Yeah, it, it is it's interesting, Andy. It is interesting as a as side that for many academics who. Are previously have spent so much time working on the guts of their paper and finding out something very, very interesting and important, and then believe that publishing it in a remote journal is enough. Uh, and actually, if what you really want to do is impact teaching and impact children's outcomes, you need to be much more active. Passive presentation of evidence, in my view, takes us nowhere.
0: A couple of final questions for you. I know that the EEF model is now being replicated in a few other countries. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so we've launched the um, the approach, the toolkit, the trials, the the whole shabudal, if you like, in Australia. Uh, we're working with colleagues in um, in in Chile in Latin America, and we're also now working with colleagues in Europe. So we are beginning to um, take this approach more widely. We're doing that on the basis that um, everything we learn, wherever we learn it, is useful to every teacher everywhere because um, essentially teaching is a universal, one of the very few, if you like, universal acts and professions. Children basically learn the same wherever they're learning. So this is asking us, this is all suggesting that education internationally should be seen as a collaborative process rather than sometimes I, I worry that I see it presented as a competitive sport The collaboration is where we'll get the insights and where we'll um, support more people to learn effectively. I don't think the competition is going to take us that far.
0: Finally, Kevin, I want to ask you about applying the lessons of EEF to the United States or to any country that's interested in that model. I think we should note that in the U.S. we do have a version of EEF, one could say, which is the Institute of Education Sciences at the U.S. Department of Education, which does fund quite a bit of research. It also has a clearinghouse, just like your WhatWorks center in the UK. That's a one-stop shop for finding insights about what works. That said, the EEF model is somewhat different. It's an independent nonprofit. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about lessons learned about about what you think has made that model successful.
1: Well, you're right. In, I mean, w- we work closely with the colleagues in the U.S. at the, uh, the IES and both the clearinghouse and I3, all the component parts for generating new research, scaling up what works, presenting the evidence to to colleagues is there. But my advice is the the key thing is that this all has to be presented and orientated in a way that really speaks to the key commissioner. And the key person that you need to speak to, I always think, is the principals who determine the priorities and decisions a school makes So I'm very interested in the localization. I think the Every Child Succeeds Act is interesting in the way that increasingly, whether it's the evidence uh, ecosystem, if you like, needs to be really relevant locally and where you can innovate from the ground up, which I think is absolutely brilliant, with discipline, but collaborate to build the evidence together and then work in a broader way. So to me, the, the key advice is, how do you present all of this endeavor in a way that speaks to the most important people in the system, which are the teachers and the principals of the schools, because they make the decisions.
0: Useful insights and a very useful model from our friends in the UK. Kevin Collins from the Education Endowment Foundation. Thanks for giving us an overview of the EEF.
1: Thanks, Andy. It's good to talk to you.